It is so good uh, to be with you here this morning. My name is Jonathan Locke. I'm the Antioch campus pastor. Uh, pastor Derek uh, has this Sunday off because he gave it to me uh, because my family had COVID months ago. And so, so now I get to pick up uh, a, a section of scripture that I missed preaching uh, the last time, but it is so good uh, to have that opportunity before you. If you've got a Bible with you, open up to Revelation chapter 19. We'll start in verse 6, and I'm excited to say that we are finally at a positive part. Jesus the King returns. Amen. Right? Okay, well, first of all, Y'all were singing like crazy, which was awesome to hear, but all I need is an amen. <laughs> amen. Okay, there you go. Very good. So I'm excited to be here this morning, but I want to start off with a little bit of fun. Um, guys, every guy in the room, head up. Look at me. All right, size me up. I'm 5'9", 5'10", about 180, 190, somewhere in there. All right? Now, if you and I got in a fist fight, who would win? All right? Think about it. Think about it for a second. All right, if you and I got in a brawl, who would win? Do you think you could beat me up? All right, put all pride aside, okay? Just be honest. Now, by show of hands, who could beat me up? All right, yeah, Caleb, you would annihilate me. Jeremy, I'd have no chance. Chris, I don't know, it might be a good one. All right, who do we got? Yeah, yeah, you guys, you guys got me. You guys got me. Uh, Tossic, you, I, I bet you, you, you battle pretty well. So I'm not offended by that. All right, super fun. It doesn't bother me that you think you can beat me up. You, you think whatever you want to. But what I want to talk about this morning is something that bothers me. And the thing that bothers me is when we underestimate the power and the might and the authority and the majesty of Jesus. When people hear the name of Jesus... I believe they ultimately underestimate his love, his supremacy. They don't consider him something to be reckoned with. And, and I hate to say it, but I believe even us as believers sometimes just don't see Jesus as the all-powerful king that he is, that deserves all praise and all honor. See, we have this picture of Jesus as this scrawny kind of uh, twig, stick figure of a man hanging on a cross. And we tend to paint this really just kind of weak picture of Jesus. So think about it. When I say the name Jesus, what image comes to your head? I'm willing to bet that it's a picture of this guy with long, flowing brown hair holding sheep. In, in, in petting them, right? These paintings portray his compassion, and yes, that is a true picture of him. He is compassionate. And, and maybe he spent time petting sheep, but, but I don't see that in the Gospels. But there is an image that Jesus talks about a lot of himself throughout all of the Gospel. And it's an image that we're going to see in this section of Revelation this morning. So let's walk through this text together, and, and I want to give you three roles uh, that we see the powerful King Jesus fulfill in his return. And then my prayer this morning for all of us is that we will walk away with a better picture 
of who Jesus is and a desire to follow him more intently and trust him more each and every day. So the first role that we're going to see is King Jesus, the groom. All right, so open your Bibles, Revelation 19, verse 6, we'll start there. It reads this, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So all throughout the Bible, we see this wedding and marriage imagery. And it's very important for us to understand why this imagery is in there, because if we don't understand it, we are going to miss out on so much. Because our weddings are not anything like ancient Jewish weddings. So we're going to look at that for really quick, for just a second here. Ancient Jewish weddings consisted of three parts. Number one was the engagement. Number two was the betrothal. And then finally was the wedding ceremony. So first, the engagement. Basically what was happening is the Hebrew father of the groom uh, made a, a, a promise to a bride, right? Or to the father of a bride. And this was usually done at a very young age. These parents would basically get together and just have an agreement between them. I've seen some of you parents with young children go, okay, we're going to hook you two up, right? I've seen that happen between y'all. That's kind of what was happening there. The first part was the engagement. Second part, we have the betrothal. Now, the betrothal was a formalized part of the engagement, basically formalized everything. At the betrothal, the bride of the groom would come together with the father, with their fathers. The bride and the grooms would come together with their fathers. And they would sit across a table from one another. And on that table, you would see a dowry. Then you would see a cup of wine and a contract. And the father of the groom would offer a dowry, a sum of money, right? And that dowry would represent the value of the bride and then also the wealth of the father of the groom. A, a final part of this offer um, was also the work of the groom, basically saying what he would do to earn the bride, so once all of these things had been discussed, the dowry and the contract, if the bride agreed, she would then take the cup and drink from it, symbolizing her giving of herself to the groom. And then at this point, the groom promises to never drink of that cup again until their wedding day, saving himself for his bride until that day. So once all of that was complete, the groom would then go back to his father's house and prepare a place for them to live, either attached to the father's home or somewhere on his property. 
And then the bride would then put a veil over her head, symbolizing that she was taken and no longer available, and then prepares herself for when the groom comes back to retrieve her for the wedding day. And this day, when the groom comes back, is only decided by the father of the groom. Now, I hope that you've seen some parallels as you've just read God's word and understand and have heard about this wedding imagery. But let's talk about it for a second. This exactly describes our situation. We were chosen before the foundation of the world. That's when the engagement happened. God chose us to be his bride. We are the bride of Christ. And then you're betrothed when? when? When you go to the Lord's table. So check this out. You take the Lord's cup and you say, I believe in you. I trust you. I surrender my life to you. And then the Lord says, I will not drink of this cup until I drink it with you again in the kingdom. We will not drink it again until we are together again at the marriage ceremony. So let's talk about this. What are you worth? What's the dowry? What's the money that's on the table? Well, remember what the Lord said. He said, this is my body given up for you. Jesus, work as the groom. What more could he do? My life completely, totally focused on you. Sinless. His body ripped apart, sacrificed on the cross. What more could he offer to prove his love? Well, how is the wealth of the Father shown? And check this out. This is really cool. God the Father says, I love you, and I want you to be my son's bride. What could he give to prove his love? A million dollars? Well, God owns everything, so that's not really a sacrifice. Diamonds? God can create anything out of nothing. So that doesn't prove his love. But think about it. There is one thing that God only has one of. His son. For God so loved you and me that he gave his son. That's how much you are worth to him. You are worth a lot to God the Father and to Jesus Christ. So now, here we are in the text, in the marriage ceremony. There's excitement. There's jubilee. People are praising God because the marriage of the Lamb has come. The bride has made herself ready. King Jesus is coming to his bride. Jesus takes us back to be with him, to the place that he has prepared for us. And we are taken back. We are proved to be pure. Think about that. When we're taken back, we're proved to be pure. It was granted her the clothe to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. But we are not pure. We come to Christ, our groom, sinful, blemished, not blameless. But it is only through the blood that was shed on the cross that makes this possible to make us right before God. So the first thing that we see is Christ, the King, as our groom. 
Let's continue on in the text. We're going to jump from this picture of Jesus, a, a loving groom, to him as a fighting warrior. Chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophets who, it, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who is sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh." Wow, that's a little bit different picture, right? Can we just go back to the groom and, and talk about that? But no, this picture has changed. Jesus is, a victorious, is on a victorious white horse with fiery eyes, crowned with many diadems or royal crowns, dressed in a robe that is covered with blood. And his purpose is to judge and make war. So in this section, let's, let's focus on these names. I hope you heard that as we read, you heard four names that, by which Jesus is called. And in order to, to really paint a good picture of Christ, it's great that God gives us this so that we can understand his names. So King Jesus, the warrior, is faithful and true. Together, uh, these words tell us that what he says, we can believe, and what he does, we can trust. As the faithful and true one, he can do what no other king can do or even think of doing. Only Jesus can be described this way. Well, how is that? Well, let me dive in a little bit deeper into a description of him. His eyes are like a flame of fire. See, Jesus sees every action. Jesus sees every thought. He knows every single emotion on our hearts. He knows you and me better than we know ourselves. And I'm grateful that only God knows me like this. But I'm also amazed that God can know the inner depths of my heart and still love me like he does. 
Next, we see King Jesus, the warrior, that has a name that no one knows but him. Think about that. Jesus has a name that no one knows but him. What this communicates to us is that no one has authority over Jesus. No one has a hold of him. But even more awesome than that is that it says that even after we've been with him for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years, we will still not have exhausted the knowledge of how great and how wonderful and how mighty Jesus is for all of eternity. Just think about that. For all of eternity, we will be learning more and more of the wonder of Jesus, the Jesus who gave his life for us. We also see that he is the word of God. And this is simply a reminder to us of God's perfect communication to us through his son, Jesus. What we read in John 1.1 earlier, what Ryan Hudnell read earlier. This, this reminds us that when we are looking at Jesus, we are looking at God. When we are listening to Jesus, we are listening to God. And then finally, King Jesus, the warrior, is named King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Start first in verse 14. Who is coming with him? The church. Right, And we can say this because of the comparison of what they're wearing in verse 8. So check this out. The army is following Jesus. Who is leading? Jesus is leading. So this isn't like any other king of kings or lord of lords because most kings and commanders, they lead from where? From the back. And they command. But no, Jesus is leading us into battle. He is leading the army. And what we see in 15 and 16 is that he's leading with a sharp sword to strike down the nations and a rod of iron to rule them. And that he will tread the winepress of the fury of God, of the wrath of God. So what gives Jesus the right to do all of this? His name. He is king of kings and lord of lords. He alone is the sovereign king and lord. He has no equal. equal. He has no competition he has complete power over all existence. So when we see an angel calls together uh, all the birds of the air for this great supper of God, and, and this is not a celebration like we see earlier with, with the marriage feast, but a swift action of condemnation. There is no escape for those who have rejected the offer of, of grace through sal and salvation through grace and through faith in Jesus Christ. King Jesus, the warrior, will defeat his enemies that oppose him. This battle is going to be pretty disappointing, though. Right? There's no big, long-drawn-out long battle plan. No, it, it, it's over very quickly. And Martin Luther captures it best in his hymn, uh, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, when he's speaking of the prince of darkness in his armies. He, he writes this. He says, one little word will fell him. With one word, the battle is over. What a powerful picture of Jesus, the warrior. He will fight for his people. He will win. 
He will be victorious over all. And when he returns, he will be king over the whole world. And then finally, we see King Jesus, the judge. Read with me chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key uh, to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of, of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had worshipped the beast or its image, those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So if there's a passage that has been debated in Revelation, this is it. There are books and books and books written about these six verses. So obviously we're not going to be able to go into much depth here at all and have enough time for everybody to get home. But I encourage you to go listen to the podcast that Pastor Derek and Pastor Micah did about uh, the millennium and all the different beliefs on the end times. But I'll explain this much to us this morning. This is a period of time when two things will happen. Satan will be bound and Jesus will reign. John sees an angel come down from heaven, bind Satan, and throw him into a bottomless pit. Why? So that he cannot deceive the nations any longer is what we read. Satan will be powerless during this time, unable to tempt people. John also sees that the people of, God, people of God resurrected from the dead and reigning with Jesus. And this period will last a thousand years or a long period of time. And honestly, that's what we read and that's what we know. In the end, God wins. Right? That's where we're going to leave that. But there is still one more enemy for Jesus to deal with. Look with me, verses 7 through 10. It says, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But check this out. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beasts and the false prophets were. And they were tormented day and night forever and ever. So after the millennium, Satan is going to be let out. 
And he will deceive people again and gather them for one last battle. And, and this should be telling to us about the human nature or human condition. Despite a thousand years of Jesus reigning on earth, Satan and, and Satan being locked away, there is still rebellion against God. Still rebellion against God. The name of the nations that Satan gathers for battle are Gog and Magog. And if you want to go study that, that is an interesting study of where those come from in the Old Testament. But they're terrible names. Let's just be honest about that. But these nations refer back to the Old Testament and they were used in Revelation to symbolize the nations that are hostile to God. Right? And they march to the place where Christ and his people are reigning. And before they can even amount an attack, what happens? God destroys them with fire. And then Satan is thrown into the lake of fire, which we all know is hell. And I think this is significant. This is significant here for us because sometimes we have this idea that Satan is in hell, sitting on a throne, ruling and tormenting everybody. But that is not the case. Jesus says that, that hell was created for Satan. And he will suffer worse than anyone in hell. And as this passage tells us, he is tormented day and night, forever and ever. And what this tells us is that Satan and God are not equals. They're not equals. They're not from two rival forces that are, storm, that are struggling uh, throughout history to beat out one another. No, from the beginning, God has all authority and power over Satan. And one day, he will eliminate him. One day, that serpent from the garden will be crushed. Our great enemy will be defeated once and for all. And then once that happens, we then come to the final judgment. So look at me, look with me at uh, verses 11 through 15. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So this is a really big deal. Because this is where people end. If you do not have your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, this is the end. We see that all people, great and small, will be standing before God and King Jesus, the judge in heaven. And they will be judged by what is written in the books according to what they had done. There are several books here. But there are two kinds, the book with, that has all the records of what has been done here on earth, and then the book of life. Now, this scene, this judgment scene, 
creates probably one of the biggest problems that people around the world have with Christianity. How can we have a loving God that gives us his son to die for our sins, and at the same time, he is also a God that judges and condemns people who do not believe in him to hell. People only want to see God as a loving God, a God that sees past everyone's evil. But here's the problem with that. When you make God a God of love, you have to also have the other side of the coin. You have to have judgment. You have to have wrath. You cannot separate love and judgment. Where you have one, you must also have the other. So how can I prove this? The simplest way that I can think of is try to hurt one of my kids or my wife. Right? I'm not crazy. I don't dream of murdering people. But I will do the best that I can to pummel you. Right? I will gather whatever strength that I have and whatever weapons I can, I can have, and I will make sure that, that you are hurt. Why? I'm not looking for a fight. No, I, I hate violence. But my 14-year-old daughter, I'm crazy about her. I love her. And if you try to hurt her, I will gladly lose my job and start a really awesome prison ministry. <laughs> Just to make sure that you don't hurt her again. Why? Is it because I'm one of wrath? That's not it at all. I'd like to consider myself pretty loving, pretty compassionate, right? I care about people. But catch this. Because that exists, judgment and wrath is possible. So if you only say that God is a God of love, you would never have any judgment or wrath. You miss the reality that those two have to coexist. You can't have love without judgment. And if you did, it would be meaningless, worthless love. A love that's not driven to fight driven to defend. So let's end this way. This is not a fairy tale. This is not fiction. This is reality. A day will come when you and I will stand before God in judgment. And that means that only one thing matters this day. Are you ready? When the book is opened and you have to give an account for the life that you have given, what will you say? There will be many that will point to all their good deeds and they will plead on that day. And they will show, I am deserving for heaven because of this. But here's the reality. None of our good deeds outweigh our bad. All of us have sinned. And that book is going to point that out. That means there's only one hope for you and me to stand before God, and that's Jesus. That's Jesus. He is our only shot that we have. He is the one to, to make everything right, 
He is the one who determines our eternity. If you trust in him, you will be saved. If you reject him, you will spend eternity in hell. And that decision needs to be made today. If you've never made the decision to follow Jesus Christ, to surrender your life to him, I pray that you would fall down before your needs before you leave this place, before you get up from your TV and say, Lord, I need you to be king of my life. I surrender my life to you. Don't miss out on following King Jesus, the groom who loves you supremely, the warrior who battles for you each and every day, and the judge who is going to stand before you and rule you pure, rule you right because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Don't miss out on that. Maybe you're here though this morning and you're, you are a believer. You've surrendered your life to Christ, but you serve a very small Jesus. Dive into God's word. Get to know who Jesus is and the power that you have, the power that's available to you through a relationship with Jesus Christ. We don't have to wring our hands and worry about each and every day and what's going to happen. No, because my hope is found in Jesus. And if you find your hope in Jesus, Jesus is big enough to take care of it all. Don't miss out on that. Let's pray.